right. Good morning. Welcome, everybody, to an early edition this week of the Cannabis Minority Report. We got a great episode lined up for you today. We have the Chief Equity Officer of New York's Office of Cannabis Management, Damian Fagan, on with us today. And we also have the first of our uh, co-hosts uh, that will be, we'll have a, a, set of, a, a, a handful of alternating co-hosts that will be joining the show. Today is Kay Villamine, who uh, you may remember from being a guest on the show a couple weeks ago, and is also the uh, chair of our state regulations committee here at the NCIA. So we're going to go ahead, like usual, and jump right into the news and highlighting some businesses as well. And then we'll get into a great conversation with Damien. I know it's going to be awesome. I've had the pleasure of working with Damien. I, you know, I'm going to give a, a better introduction in just a minute, but first we're going to get into the news. So all right. Uh, so, Kay, actually, I'm going to uh, hand it over to you. And uh, what do you got for us today? What's going on in the world of cannabis? Thanks, Mike. Um, so we'll keep the news short today because we have a lot to talk about with Damien. Um, some of the headlines that hit actually very recently brought to us by Marijuana Moment is that um, a new bill was um, introduced in Idaho, um, a new bill designed to provide a very tightly regulated system of medical cannabis was introduced. Um, just on Friday morning in the Idaho House of Representatives, the House Health and Welfare Committee Chairman John Vanderwood, um, he introduced a House bill uh, called the Idaho Medical Cannabis Act, which is a personal bill on the a personal bill on the floor of the Idaho House um, just last Friday morning. So he took an unusual step of introducing the bill as a personal bill rather than following the more traditional practice of bringing a draft bill to a legislative committee for an introductory hearing. And typically in practice, personal bills do not advance because they circumvent the committee process and are often introduced to start a discussion and lay the, gr the groundwork for future policy discussion. So what does the Idaho Medical Cannabis Act allow? Uh, under the new Idaho Medical Cannabis Act, patients with a significant medical condition, such as cancer, AIDS, ALS, wasting syndrome, epilepsy, Crohn's disease, or any terminal illness would be eligible for a medical cannabis card, and it would be valid for up to one year before renewal. The bill would also allow for ingestible cannabis process as a pill, a droplet, tablet, or chewable, containing up to 10 milligrams of CHC, which must be obtained from a licensed Idaho pharmacist. This bill is not gonna allow for cannabis in its raw form or allow for cannabis to be smoked or vaped. vaped. So under the bill, cannabis producers would need to obtain a license to grow, process, and handle cannabis. Producers would also be subject to background checks and inspections. So, you know, a lot of uh, surrounding states are already allowing for medical cannabis um, around Idaho, uh, such as Utah, allowing for rec recreational cannabis, Oregon, Washington. So we shall see how this all plays out. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's interesting to see Idaho. I think Idaho is one of the last holdouts in this entire country. I think we have uh, Kansas. Idaho, and maybe there's one or two others that are just have completely zero program at all. Uh, so interesting to see that. And uh, curious to see how it was introduced because, uh, you know, this is so now it's going to be a conversation for what, another two to three years <laughs> before they finally do bring something or maybe they'll move a little faster. So hopefully we'll get to see something soon. I'm curious to see how they're going to handle equity and social equity in the state of Idaho. Um, and curious to see how this will also affect, uh, you know, Washington state. I know that Washington as uh, you know, some of those border dispensaries, so to speak, right? So, uh, no, thanks, Kay. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, you got anything else for us today? Yeah, actually, um, one very interesting piece of news here coming from here in uh, 
Illinois um, that headlines, Illinois property combines marijuana store and uh, alcohol sales under one roof. So I know we're going to, uh, you know, get a lot of eyebrows raised on this one. But um, uh, a store in, in suburban Chicago actually opened up with a liquor license attached to it. So OK Cannabis and West Ham Bakery Cafe in Wheeling, uh, which is the suburb outside of Chicago, is combining retail, baked goods, a cocktail bar, and an event space under one roof in a move that's being billed as the first in Illinois and one of the few nationwide. So it's a concept from the 5050 Restaurant Group, which is a hospitality group that has many restaurants and, and lounges and bars around the city already. Um, and what they said, the, found, the co-founder of the 5050 Group said, we're really trying to create more of a gathering place that people can make part of their lives, whether they're a part, where, whether they're there to buy cannabis or not. So the ownership of OK Cannabis, which is actually a social equity licensee, um, includes Charles Mayfield and Amaya Power, um, who's actually part of the Indian American and a former Chicago 47th Ward Alderman, actually. So um, they plan to open two or more of these OK Cannabis locations, one in, actually in Chicago in the city in the West Town neighborhood and another in suburban Evanston. So we should see how that that's a, it's going to be very interesting how that how that plays out. Um, very curious to see, see, especially, you know, as we are also in the consumption space, how that's that's going to play. I know that, you know, it's always a question of how um, sustainable and, you know, viable consumption lounges are. And, and so bringing other forms of revenue makes sense. But to combine it with alcohol and, you know, other other forms like retail, this is going to be a very interesting business model to, to. Yeah, uh, really, really <clears throat> excuse me, really curious to see how this is going to play out because uh, aside from the fact that from a licensing perspective, this is something we haven't really seen before. Uh, there's also just the, the practical aspect of people consuming both at the same time, uh, alcohol and, and, uh, and cannabis, and maybe there will be you know, a rule to not consume both at the same time, but how are they going to actually enforce that? Um, right. And uh, really curious to see how this is going to play out. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, you did mention uh, that you're in the consumption space. Uh, those of you who don't know that are listening today, Kay, of course, is the co-founder of Hush Chicago. Uh, they do uh, experiential events in, uh, in Chicago as well as uh, recently in Vegas. Uh, but, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a real uh, that's a real head scratcher that they were able to get that through uh, and be able to uh, to get, you know, their, their permits and their licenses on both aspects of things. I'm assuming that they are not yeah, under the same uh, address? Do you know if they were able to kind of like game the system? Not not trying to say they were gaming the system, but so to speak, be able to put this underneath a couple different addresses and under the same roof, or is it all in one address? It seems like it's one address right now, and so there's there is a lot of questions on how this is being allowed, considering we have bills on a table regarding consumption and events that hasn't even been moved for a few years now. So. Uh, lots of questions, lots of investigating to do, but very, very curious to see if it's actually going to be open and in operation. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, just to throw out here, I think that it's great to see that at least we're seeing creative solutions to how do we create a more viable model for the consumption right. lounge? Because some states have made the consumption lounge where it's literally just cannabis consumed on site that's able to be sold. And we know that's a very challenging model. Uh, you know, especially uh, in a place like, uh, like suburban Chicago, where rents are uh, decently high. 
So uh, anyway, no, thanks, Kay. Um, and so let's uh, go ahead and switch gears here then to talking about, we, you know, we like to, uh, on the show, highlight a handful of businesses. Uh, and this month, we're highlighting businesses or organizations that are either founded by or led by women in honor of uh, Women's History Month. So I got a couple lined up uh, that I wanted to definitely uh, make sure we, we, we give some shout outs to and some, some love towards. Uh, but Kay, did you have any that you wanted to, uh, to, to address first? Uh, I wanted to shout out a colleague, um, Soul and Wellness, Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Williams here in Chicago, who has been in operation for a few years now. Provide her um, services provide uh, medical cannabis uh, cards for patients, and so she's in servicing the community, doing it um, just her and her parents alongside her. So um, just want to highlight her and give a shout out to her. Awesome. And a couple of organizations that I'd like to highlight, one of them, of course, in Chicago, actually, Illinois Women of Cannabis. Uh, this is uh, run headed by Amor Montez. And this is an organization that, as it sounds, Illinois Women in Cannabis really supports, highlights, features and uplifts uh, women in the cannabis industry. Uh, and what I really love about Illinois Women in Cannabis is that they are an extremely diverse group of women leaders. Uh, I just saw a post by uh, Nefer. Nefer um, and I don't know how to say Nefer's name very well, so I'm going to go ahead and, and skip that part of it right now. But Nefer is uh, is a very strong leader in the industry. And I saw a post of hers on LinkedIn, actually, I think it was this morning, that said something along the lines of the progression that she's gone through in since being a part of Illinois Women in Cannabis. And that's, to me, what was really remarkable, was a lot of times we see these organizations, they come on the scene, they do something for about a year or so, and then things kind of fall apart. What I really appreciate about Illinois Women in Cannabis is that they came on the scene a few years ago, and it was definitely a challenge to figure out how to be in the space, right? But over the years, we've seen them grow now to where they have an amazing conference, it sounds like, uh, that happened just this last weekend. And there's so many great supporters throughout the entire Chicago area. So really great to see Amor uh, leading the charge. And I know diversity and equity and inclusion has been at the forefront of their mission since day one. I know UK and uh, and your business partner, Vanessa, have been involved with them also since early on. Um so, the, so Illinois Women in Cannabis, uh, much love to you all and all the work that you're doing supporting women in the industry uh, out there in Illinois, uh, setting a really good template for what can be done in other states as well. Um, another association, uh, which is uh, the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, is, is uh, the executive director is Mary Jane Oatman, who will actually be a guest here in a couple weeks. And Mary Jane Oatman, for those of you that don't know, has been really just leading the charge in advocacy for uh, for, 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 for Indigenous uh, cannabis um, for, for many years now uh, in Washington, D.C., as well as around the country. And so Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, ICIA, uh, was founded, I believe, last year and really uh, merged a couple of different organizations together, including uh, an organization that uh, Mary Jane had originally founded herself. And so seeing what they're doing, they had a conference last year uh, in our summit last year in Washington, D.C. Um, it happened in uh, I want to say it was in November. Uh, very successful. A lot of people showed up and were able to advocate uh, there in D.C., set some great meetings with folks. Uh, and so looking forward to seeing how that goes, because just to be frank here, uh, as we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in the industry, something that we have often left out. And when I say we, I mean, as an industry uh, has been making sure that we do advocate for the indigenous rights within this industry. And it's something that is very, to be quite frank, complex for a lot of us that aren't familiar with the issues. And so we often sometimes, uh, you know, what's what's complex and what's challenging sometimes gets left uh, behind. 
And I, I think that we need to do a better job as an industry in recognizing that, okay, let's have these conversations. Let's learn about the situation so that we can move forward equitably together. Inclusion always takes time. It always takes a little bit of an extra effort, so to speak. And I think that this is uh, something that is very important for us to do is to work together and to make sure that we are working with our indigenous leaders. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's my take on things. Just want to throw those things out there today. As we segue now into the conversation that we're about to have here with Damien, I do want to mention that we are looking to be in New York. The, when I say we, the NCIA, uh, we have our industry social on April 27th. That's going to be in New York in conjunction with MJ Unpacked, the, the, the conference coming up at the end of, uh, at the end of April. Um, we also are looking to do one of our stops on the equity workshop tour. Uh, it's not official yet. We're looking at, we're eyeballing April 29th. We are still looking for sponsors. Uh, I want to give a big shout out here to David Fetner and Grow America Builders for stepping in as our gold sponsor for the event. Uh, so, you know, so we can actually indeed host the event and have the event in the first place. We are looking for sponsors to be able to make that happen. Uh, our equity workshop tour, for those of you who don't know, it's designed specifically for our social equity uh, applicants and operators around the country. And we really focus on de developing content that is specific to that market. And so we work with local organizations uh, and organizations that are maybe national, but also have local chapters. So M4MM, uh, MCBA, Justice Foundation, uh, these are some of the organizations that we're looking to partner with and that we've, uh, we've, we've been working with in New York and looking forward to doing an amazing event there where we bring folks together. Uh, the workshop tour this year, the real focus is uh, really developing that network and tapping into that national network. We know that being stuck in silos is one of the things that really hurts a lot of us in the industry and especially on the social equity side of things. And so the more that we can learn from each other and bring a network together, uh, that's that's really what, what, the, what the, uh, the workshop tour is designed to do. So that all said, uh, we have a great guest today, Damien Fagan. I've had the pleasure of working with Damien, Damien in the past. Uh, Damien was actually in his previous uh, former life before he was the Chief Equity Officer at uh, the New York Office of Cabinet Management, uh, was part of our New York Social Equity Roundtable that we've talked about a little bit here. Uh, that roundtable has been going on for about a little over a year now, uh, made up of over a dozen organizations, uh, again, national organizations as well as local organizations with equity at the forefront, especially in New York. Uh, we've uh, submitted several uh, public comments. We've had great conversations uh, with Damien's office in the past as well. Uh, really building what we what we can to build uh, a positive conversation around how do we form greater equity. So, you know, Damien, I have um, I have here the, the formal uh, your formal bio, which I am going to read off here because I think it's I, it's really you don't have to read to it give, off. Uh, I'll read it off. All right, cool. <laughs> I was a farmer. I was a teacher. I, uh, I was at a nonprofit, and now I'm here. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Keep it simple for me. Yeah. But no, look, what, what I've said, what I've said often to people about New York, because people ask me all the time about the equity in New York and how is it going to work out. And I've said to folks, you know, and I'm not sitting here trying to blow smoke, but I really appreciate in New York the way that your office has been constructed, where it's a very diverse office that also has a lot of experience in the cannabis industry to begin with. And I think that's really a large part of where it starts. So, you know, Damien, you know, welcome to the show and, and congratulations on the position. I don't think we've actually talked since you actually uh, took the position. I know you've been pretty busy. I haven't um, even but... talked to my parents, really. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, you know, can, what can you tell us about, you know, just in general, how's the rollout going in New York uh, before we get into any more specifics? How is everything going there? Yeah, uh, I mean, so it is um, going according to, you know, you know how we want it to in terms of in terms of licensing uh rollout uh but sorry someone just tried to walk in my office 
but uh the the pace at pace at which that's happening um is obviously running into some into some challenges and, and i think that you know i knew coming into this job this was about to get difficult and messy uh because i have you know studied the social equity rollouts of every other state uh and you know i we actually did this recently because uh, i was talking to um Shailene Title in Massachusetts, and I was asking about the early rollout in Massachusetts for social equity, what that looked like from from her perspective as a regular. Because what I'm looking at is just like a lot of crazy articles, <laughs> a lot of takes, uh, a lot of attention for some reason on on every single particular detail of, of of what's happening. And it 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 was the same thing in Massachusetts. It was article after article, like delays, drama. You know, uh, you know, a, a lot of media, local media outlets who never looked at cannabis in the 40 years it was illegal. All of a sudden, are just dialed in on this. Uh, and if you look, if you Google states and, and social equity and cannabis and, and rollouts, like you'll see, every state has had this kind of coverage, um, uh, hyper focused coverage on, on on the rollout. I think in New York, it's a specifically uh, um, specifically powerful narrative to a lot of folks here because prohibition was so um, damaging so traumatic for so many communities and because the idea of cannabis is so thoroughly lodged in the culture here in New York that uh you know there's a lot of attention specifically paid to this and so you know i think uh you know we're opening up uh two more dispensaries this week that'll bring us up to eight total across the state we were hoping that number would be higher by now but uh you know it's ultimately dictated uh by the pace at which you know our licensees are ready to open their dispensaries uh, the, the, not all of them are walking into these uh, turns, uh, turnkey um, retail locations that we were, you know, intending to have open for them. So a lot of them are bringing their own properties to the to the uh, to the industry, and so it's taking a little time to get those properties up and running and compliant. But um, yeah, we have a couple more opening up uh, this week, and we're very excited uh, to keep rolling up uh, rolling out dispensaries through the summer. Awesome. I appreciate that little bit of background. Um, for further background, you know, just to be clear here, those of us our audience that aren't aware, New York has a specific license type uh, called the card license, right? Uh, mm -hmm. C-A-U-R-D. And, you know, as, as we start developing, so what is the card license and what are the other types of licenses? Are there other types of licenses that we should be expecting? Like, are these justice involved? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a background on that <clears> thing, so we understand? So the, the the card license is the you know the third license in this condition conditional licensing period that a lot of states have done uh, where they start with a few farmers they start with some processors and they start with some um, retailers to get the supply chain up and running. We wanted to get our track and trace up and running, um, you know, develop all these systems, put them in place so that when we do the larger rollout, it's a lot it run, rolls a lot smoother. Um, we have the inter uh, you know the back office infrastructure. Uh, and all the tech stacks and all the regulations and everything's figured out and it's nice and orderly and now bring in the 10,000 applications for the general licensing. So the card license uh, is for justice impacted New Yorkers uh, and um, nonprofits uh, who, you know, had a marijuana arrest or their family member had a, a marijuana arrest um, and uh, had two years of business experience. Those are the two pre two qualifying uh, criteria for the justice impacted designation. Uh, and so we had uh, about 900 applications back in September uh, from people all over the country. Uh, you know, New York arrested a lot of people over the last 40 years. And a lot of those people don't even live here anymore. So we we definitely had applications from all over the country uh, in, interested in those licenses. The criteria that drew a lot of attention was the business ownership requirement. Uh, you know, they had to have be able to show that they'd operated and run a business for two years profitably. And, you know, that was the result, that requirement was the result of a lot of 
um, just, you know, observations from other legal markets. You know, you can't put these um, extremely uh, complicated and um, difficult businesses to, to run uh, in the hands of someone who's never, you know, had to balance um, a budget uh, for a business and pay taxes before as a business. It's just, it, it just becomes overly burdensome and you just set, you're just setting them up for failure. Um, and so, you know, without the infrastructure in place to start preparing people for that opportunity, we really, we really uh, recognize the need to get people who are ready to, to get up and running quickly. Um, and that's who a lot of these licensees are. They have existing businesses um, that have done well in their communities. Uh, they know what it's like to work with the state. They know what it's like to pay taxes. They know what it's like to 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 follow labor law here in New York and, and recognize unions. And and so uh, it, it's it's moving at a much quicker pace because of that that business ownership requirement. And so uh, we recently announced at the last board meeting that we were increasing that number to 300 uh, card licensees to start our industry. Uh, our next board meeting, we will announce uh, over, you know, I, I, we're aiming to announce over 100 licenses at our next board meeting uh, for the card program. Excellent. And right now, I think about 60 or so have been uh, released, right? Is 68. Yeah. 68. Okay, awesome. Um, so you mentioned, you know, the, without the infrastructure in place, it's it's difficult and challenging to get these businesses up and running quickly. Um, but I know that uh, your office has put together or started to put together at least an accelerator program of some sort, right? Um, accelerator incubator type of program. Um, so yep. can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, we when I, the second I joined on, uh, I knew that our card licensees, you know, they may know how to, you know, um, run a business uh, P and L sheet. They, they, you know, they they know the basics, uh, you know, turning a turning a dollar into two, but they didn't know the leading strategies for running a successful and efficient uh, cannabis dispensary. Uh, you know, a lot of states have had a ten year jump on on, on our entrepreneurs on, on on businesses in this state, and there's just a lot of things that people need to understand and learn. Uh, if they're going to be competitive when we open up licensing to the rest of the country and they start opening up dispensaries a few blocks away. And so we, we, we st my team and I started looking at um, organizations, uh, nonprofits, community organizations that could potentially bring that expertise to our card licensees uh, back in August last year. And uh, we, you know, scoured the country looking for these organizations. We, you know, a lot of the social equity training organizations actually talked to us. They talked to members of my team over the last six months. Um, and we interviewed them based on what they were able to bring to the table. Uh, we ended up settling uh, it, when we, we found uh, our academy, uh, which is a, a social equity accelerator out in Los Angeles that has done some incredible work uh, bringing up uh, social equity brands and retailers and getting people licensed, getting them up and running, compliance, um, training entrepreneurs. They had just recently done a class of New Yorkers uh, in, in in last year. And so uh, they'd also done stuff with MJ Impact and the money stage. And just, they had this wraparound services that really took someone who did who wasn't in the cannabis space all the way through to launching a business that's ready to present to investors on the money stage at MJ Impact, and um, we were just blown away with their with their wraparound services and their expertise. And so um, they will be uh, running a twenty week accelerator for our card licensees starting uh, started last week. Actually, they did the first three classes last week, um, but it'll all be virtual from here on out. They will be matched with a mentor who either runs a dispensary or has experience running a dispensary. They will get pro formas. Uh, tech stack advice. They will get SOPs on how to run a dispensary. Um, you know how to you know move SKUs through the store quicker. Um, digital marketing. Everything that every top dispensary in Los Angeles knows will be brought to our dispensary owners here. Um, and so they'll do that first cohort. Uh, you know over the next twenty weeks, and then they'll do a second cohort for uh, the other half of the the card licensees uh, after uh, late summer. 
Also, if you know, is this um, a free accelerator program? Is there a fee to? No, it's free, completely free. And so it'll also be available. So we'll we'll offer it um, virtually live in person with the mentors and all the wraparound services to the first 175 card licensees. Um, and the other 125 that's uh, going up to 300 will be able to rewatch um, all those recordings live uh, on their website. Um, and uh, we'll also be working with them to find the mentors as well. But um, so it'll the, the the lessons and the work plans and, and everything, the SOPs and, and the performers will be available to all 300 card licensees. And I think that is like one of the things that really like jumped out to me is like, you know, you guys are aware that we're building a two tier market here. Um, and, you know, New York City real estate is a significant challenge. It's going to be significant challenges to retailers. It's particularly due to, to, to 280E and how that impacts retailers. And so we really need to get them, uh, you know, dialed in on their margins. Um, how much cannabis do you need to sell uh, to make that property work, to make that location work? If you want to be a midtown, here's how much cannabis you're going to have to sell. Here's what your digital marketing strategy might need to be to meet those numbers. Um, that's what we're uh, preparing people, what, what we recognize is a significant need on, on, on their end. Yeah, and that mentorship piece is going to be key too. You know, in addition to the all the trainings and the performers and things like that you're talking about, that mentorship piece is definitely going to be key. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Anthony Jenkins, uh, who's a, a really active part of our, uh, our of our social equity community here at NCAA, uh, I know he went through uh, our academy. Um, speaks really highly and, of that. I got to so. I got to say this. Anthony Jenkins <clears throat> is the reason I ever met Hillary U. The reason I ever met Hillary U. and uh, a bunch of other um, social equity activists in Los Angeles is because I was connected to him through like a friend and I talked to him and he's like, and I was telling him what was going on in New York. This is like right after the MRTA was signed. He's like, man, you should really talk to these guys in LA. And I was like, who? <laughs> LA? Do they even have equity in LA? <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and I, and you know what? I was blown away. I, I got to meet Kika Keith. I got to meet all these, hear these amazing stories about what was happening in LA. And I was like, wow, we have so much to learn from you guys uh, as we embark on this. And, you know, it's, Critical to my education in this space was meeting Anthony Jenkins, who connected me to that group in LA. And that that, that actually speaks to like the social that's equity. How we connected. That's how we connected. That's exactly yeah. how we connected. And this this speaks to like you know social equity people who care about this this industry and care about this sector and caring about getting more people involved in this industry and in, in in ownership. Like just talking to each other, like you end up making all these connections uh, that really serve um, the greater good and great and, and you know the strength of programs. So. Much appreciated. Uh, Shout out Anthony Jenkins. Absolutely. <laughs> next level edibles. Next level edibles in in, in uh, California. Amazing. Uh, uh, what do they have? Um, uh, I'm drawing a complete blank here. Okay, help me out. What, uh, coconut oil and brown sugar. Uh, that's mm. what they infused coconut oil and infused brown sugar. Um, I mean, you know, just amazing, amazing guy too. So, um, yeah. Look, uh, you know, I think that you you bring up a good point because you know, with LA, the thing about New York coming on a little later, ten years later, is the ability to learn from mistakes, right? The ability to learn from what did go wrong in Los Angeles, because we we all, you know, I don't know, we all, but many of us know that Los Angeles has not been a very equitable rollout in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's where the Kika Keiths and the Hillary U's of the world have been able to step in and figure out how do we bridge that, these gaps and help to advocate for uh, better policies and create more structure. And now we're seeing them actually plug in directly into New York, where it's baked into the cake. Um, so, uh, with that said, uh, you know, I think that you know, actually. Okay, do, do, I want to make sure, Kay, because you're not as involved with the New York Social Equity Roundtable. Are there any questions you have for Damien uh, before I get into some more detailed things here? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the 
things that are the terms that have uh, have been coined throughout the years of the illicit market, the underground market, the black market is, you know, the term legacy, right? Um, can you clarify for us how your office references legacy versus gray versus regulated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets tricky, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, just like California, New York has a very uh, entrenched, longstanding uh, legacy industry uh, that stems that, that extends from, you know, people bringing packs out from California for the last 30 years to actual growers in the Bronx, Washington Heights, growing haze, East Buffalo houses, South Syracuse. I've, I've, I've met people in South Syracuse who have been growing in houses out there for for generations. Um, we also have, you know, a bunch of just like California, you know, legacy, you know, farmers who've been growing in the Finger Lakes in the woods out there through in multiple generations. And so there's just this a, a, not to mention Rochester. Rochester has a very ingrained cannabis culture, uh, especially around cultivation. Um, and so, you know, the big the big challenge on our end is like we a lot of us who've come into this agency, uh, we're cannabis consumers. Uh, a lot of native New Yorkers uh, work here who have been buying cannabis in Long Island and upstate and in the city for the last 20 years. And so they already had a lot of these pre-existing relationships with people in their community who sold cannabis. Um, so we had a lot of internal understanding of, of who those people were, we actively sought them out. We went to Washington Heights to meet with them to learn about how they started growing haze in the basement of Washington Heights. We we host, you know, a bunch of our a bunch of our staff like host actual meetings with them almost once a month now, um, just to to check in with them and to see where that. I'm going to a dinner with some legacy growers on Wednesday in Brooklyn, uh, just to just to hear hear them out and and, and get to know them a little bit better. But um, that's the legacy community. That's a very deserving community of um, legal opportunities and transitioning to the legal market. We honestly can't create a sustainable uh thriving dynamic industry without them they know how to grow weed they know how to sell weed we need them um the gray market that has popped up in new york is not that um the gray market is opportunism and greed at at, at new york's finest i mean this is a city that people people know people uh know how to make money in new york they know how to find loopholes um it's a really tough city to live in in a lot of cases with the, with the cost of living and so the gray market that's popped up has kind of um you know, destabilized that legacy industry has has taken a lot of their revenue has, you know, has hurt a lot of those the way those people put uh, food on their family's tables. And, you know, we're talking about smoke shops and I'll, I'll paint. A, I actually recently had a, a conversation with a smoke shop owner who started selling cannabis uh, illicitly, but didn't want to ultimately across the street from him is another smoke shop. Um, this is somewhere in like the, uh, the East Village. And so that smoke shop across the street started selling weed. And because that's that that smoke shop started selling weed, they started getting all the customers to buy all the, you know, the, the smoke shop equipment, the candy bars, whatever. But they're also going there to buy weed. But they've taken all of his customers in order for him to even survive. He had to start selling weed uh, to get his customers back into his smoke shop. And so if you can imagine that in five boroughs all across the city. It was just like this, like um, vicious cycle where, where people, you know, who never wanted to sell weed throughout in, in their legal businesses felt they they had to because they were being saturated with this comp competitive market um, marketplace. And so um, it's a very unfortunate situation. We are on um, uh, we are working very intensely right now with our legislators in Albany to get uh, an enforcement bill uh, through that will expand our authority to go after these uh, gray market operators to, to go after the landlords as well who are doing this, because, you know, in my neighborhood, for example, there is a kind of rundown. I'm on the Upper East Side on 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 around 67th, 65th Street. 
there's a very rundown building that has not had a business in it for a very long time. And it's now it's had this illicit shop there uh, for about three months now. It's half a block from a high school. Um, the kids walk by it every day. A lot of them, I've seen them pop in there. Um, I've gone in there multiple times and asked them, like, what are you guys doing here? You know, this is illegal. And they just they, they don't care. Um, they're selling eighty dollar eights in there. Um, it's terrible. And so, um, uh, you know, with this new legislation, we'll be able to go up to the landlords, the person who owns that derelict building, who wasn't been able to rent it out to another business, I guess, um, and really, you know, um, uh, call into question their certificate of authority to even operate a business at that location. Um, do you have like a liquor license in another location? Do you have a, um, are, 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 are you, um, do you have other businesses? Like this is, this is indicative of how you, you know, manage your properties where there's illicit drugs uh, that are a public health challenge half a block from a high school, that's a problem. And so um, the, the new legislation and, and our efforts now are really to just uh, bring in more stakeholders to assist us in enforcing the law. Um, so that would be the state tax authority and, and, and local law enforcement as well. I oh, appreciate that. Uh, you know, I know in California, especially in Southern California and L.A., this has been a major issue, uh, all the different shops down there. Uh, is this a different strategy that you guys are using with going after the landlords as opposed to the shops? Like, I mean, how do you expect yes, to be able to, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a different strategy because going after the individuals running these uh, locations is it's the war on drugs 2.0. Um, you know, they are like, I just, like, I just told you someone who was responding to some competitive pressure to save his business, that business he may actually need to send his kid to college or to, you know, just pay his rent. Uh, and so, you know, punishing that person on an individual level, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll sort of stop it there, but you know, it'll also just be an, end, an endless game of whack-a-mole. Um, right. you, 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 if you create an environment where you're just punishing people who are responding to that kind of pressure, they'll still respond to it at another location. They'll still have to make money. Um, but if you end the ability uh, of landlords, um, to provide locations to do these businesses, um, you know, it, it really will, um, put an end to the gray market quite quickly. Uh, and, and, and hopefully, you know, you know, if enough of these guys didn't actually get a cease and desist later and get locked into our system, just wait for, a, wait for a license. I have met with a lot of these guys and I've explained to them, you know, this is not how you get a liquor license. You know, this right. is not how you do business. Like this is not how you do any of your other business. And so why this, why now? And in a lot of cases, it's just opportunism. Uh, you know, they've talked to their lawyers who talked to their landlords who said like, you know what, we can make a quick buck here. Yeah. We'll piss some people off, but it might be worth it in the end. Um, it's just really short-sighted and uh, really unfortunate, especially because this is a city that just came out of 40 years of prohibition where you know we have all this stigma we have so much stigma uh around the cannabis plant all this uh uh perceptions of criminality and and neighborhoods in decline and they're just re-stigmatizing this plant all over again in the eyes of new yorkers you're making it so Absolutely. much harder for our licensees to actually get up and running and, and succeed because all these parents are pissed all these uh you know community boards are pissed everyone right, and they seen... equate that yeah, yes. they equate that with uh, with with legal cannabis, and they don't exactly. realize that no legal regulated cannabis shop also has a security person that checks right. IDs and registers. Yeah. It looks a lot so different. Of so course, looks very yeah. different. Uh, so you know, just something real quick here. Are you familiar with um, ASTM's uh, legacy operator definition? No. Um, so ASTM, you know, the, they're the uh, the standardizations uh, organization, uh, and so their definition that they're looking to get adopted that we're right now considering within the social equity roundtable is a legacy operator is a legacy operator is an individual who 
commercially from the majority of their income or sacramentally or ceremonially distributed cannabis outside of the legal framework during the period of prohibition for a minimum of five years before legalization. That sounds very mm -hmm. similar to what you were talking about when you said how your office views uh, legacy. So um, yeah. it sounds like there's some potential there to have that language adopted or something like that adopted maybe. Well, um, I, forward. I, I will say like this, this question of like finding some sort of like legal pathway for legacy has been on the table in New York for the last three, four or five years now. Um, it's not, the answer is not coming to us and it's not coming in time for this industry. And so what, what my team has been focused on in our conversations with legacy operators, we've actually realized that a lot of these individuals have lived or currently live or at some point in their lives lived in communities disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition. Um, and those communities are prioritized under the cannabis law for access to licensing. Uh, so okay. the South Bronx, East Brooklyn, uh, a lot of parts of Queens, uh, East Buffalo. So we're actually, you know, intending to go out later this summer and meet with a lot of these legacy groups in these cities and in these populations to tell them, you know, if you can find your leases from these years, if you can find your, you know, your 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 tax returns from these years or whatever that says that you lived at these addresses, you actually will qualify for priority and licensing if you want a cultivation license or a retail license. And so it's about finding other way, ways to meet them where they're at, um, as opposed to, you know, trying to create this new definition of legacy that will immediately just get challenged by a lawsuit. Got you. So now uh, you mentioned the CDIs, the communities disproportionately impacted. Um, is that something that folks can find? Have you already defined what these are within the different counties? Um, could you um, go to your website and find this information yet? Where are you at? Oh, so I'm, I'm looking at our arrests and convictions right now on, on another page because we're almost done with that analysis. But um, the state of New York arrested 1.3 million people over the last uh, 40 years. Um, and so over the last six months, seven months, my team has been um, manually and using, you know, code as well to clean all those addresses, because this is a this is an officer saying, like, where do you live and writing down their address manually, then it was uploaded into a system. And so there's it's missing zip codes, it's missing addresses, it's spelled wrong, whatever Queens is a nightmare, because the addresses there are crazy. Uh, but we are about uh, 75 to 80% done with that uh, address cleaning. And so we expect to release a map um, in, you know, June, July, that will allow anybody in the state of New York to go look at you know, where these communities were. Um, and and it's not going to be a surprise to boast. It's 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 the South Bronx. It's um, Washington Heights. It is Inwood. It is, um, you know, Jamaica, Queens. And so um, but there will be a mechanism by which people can actually uh, find out if they um, qualify as an individual from these communities. Awesome. I appreciate that. So people can keep their eyes out and open for that. We'll make sure to report on that here on this show as well. Um, you know, on this note, so with the CDIs, is this also where, because I know that uh, New York has this community reinvestment fund, right? That where yeah. 40, I think 40% of tax dollars, sales tax dollars are being put in this community reinvestment fund. Is, is that also going to affect that? Like, is this where the money would go? Into That's where the money goes. Okay. Yeah. The money goes for projects in those communities. It goes for, you know, scholarships in those communities, reentry services. You know, there's, you know, we've talked internally about how far this money could go in terms of paying down medical debt for people in those communities um and uh re-entry services workforce development everything like that awesome so not just cannabis related uh, but actually like really community reinvestment no okay. yeah so the, the money that's going to go um, back into the to, to help the businesses is actually going to come through our office first um so we'll have our own social equity money within the agency to use to support those businesses but the community reinvestment fund will be totally separate from that gotcha okay um, so, you know, on this note, one of the things that our, uh, our roundtable had advocated for, we, I think we sent a letter uh, to, your, to your office, um, it was uh, a, uh, I'm going to read the name of this here, 
a community advisory committee for economic inclusion and expansion. So this will be in addition to the existing advisory board for the cannabis mm. advisory board. Um, you know, is this something that you guys see as a viable thing? I, I know that we haven't had a discussion about this yet, but you know, is this something that you get, you all look into? I know in, in Michigan state, it's something that they did, uh, which is actually where we modeled this after, uh, because in Michigan they have their regular advisory board, but then we realized that that covers everything cannabis related. And so this was, it would be a specific committee or a specific board just designed to make recommendations about, for example, how to reinvest that money, uh, how to provide, you know, advice. Uh, yeah. So our advisory board, our advisory board is chock full of people with, you know, economic development backgrounds, public health backgrounds. They're, they're the ones who are going to oversee the distribution of the grant money, the community reinvestment fund. I think specifically you're talking more about like the economic development associated with the rollout of the industry. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah, covered. Both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that 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 part of the uh, of the work is covered by my team. Uh, so I think this is actually unique in New York. We're the social uh, and economic equity uh, division at, at the agency. And that's kind of uh, so economic development also falls under, you know, our 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 mandate. Uh, and that includes like ensuring that there's geographic diversity um, in, in the rollout of this industry. Uh, an example of that, you know, our social and economic equity plan, which is coming out uh, in, 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 at the next board meeting, I think in hopefully in May, um, it will have an economic development strategy uh, tethered to it. Um, and an example of that is, you know, we have a micro business license. Uh, the micro business license is modeled after our craft beer uh, industry and our and our wineries. And we have a very established uh, tourism, multi-billion dollar tourism industry in Long Island and the Finger Lakes and Hudson Valley, where people can actually go to bed and breakfasts at craft breweries or whatever. We're going to replicate that with cannabis, with cannabis farms and micro business uh, farms. Um, that that are coordinated with that 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 the tourism initiatives in those areas, um, so we can build a uh, upon those and actually take advantage and leverage those established tourism um, destinations to, to to sell cannabis. And so um, there will be a very uh, you know strategic economic development approach to the way we roll out licenses and to the where we roll out licenses and what types of licenses are available to people in those communities. Okay. Well, I appreciate the thoughtfulness that you guys are putting behind everything. It, it sounds like uh, you know I know that. The, you know, the, the, what we see on the outside is a lot of uh, questions. We end up with a lot more uh -huh. questions than we have answers. So it's good to talk to you and kind of see that you guys have a plan behind the scenes and how you're approaching things. Um, I, I, I am just going to say from my own experience that I think that it could be helpful to have some kind of an extra advisory board to be able to help uh, with the efforts of your office because you all are how many people and it can be a challenge sometimes to get that stuff done. But yeah. I also understand, you know, uh, you know, things have to go. There's also, there's also an administrative cost to, to managing advisory boards. Right. That's true. <laughs> <I will> say, <laughs> they're not, they don't just work for themselves. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, all right. Uh, I think I had uh, one more question here for you that I definitely wanted to ask um, is just, uh, so this is regarding, you, you did mention earlier the fund, uh, for the dispensaries, right? Uh, yeah. I think it was originally going to be a two hundred million dollar fund. I believe you. All, I think you've raised about fifty million so far. There's fifty million in state money in there, yeah. Right. Um, and so, what's the what's the plan basically for you know getting the rest of that money in the door? Uh, you know, is there a plan B? Um, you know, what? Wh how are you all planning on on approaching that? Because I know a lot of folks uh, that did go through the application process and that really you know been trying to figure this out and put some family money into this. We're really counting on a lot of that money, right? So, what's the yeah. what's plan B right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a very unfortunate situation. And I think a lot of the so I first of all, I, I'm not 
uh, privy to those fundraising conversations. That is DASNY and the Social Equity Fund, um, the group that won the RFP for that. They are managing that. But, you know, I, I do get asked about that a lot because it's called the Social Equity Fund and I'm the chief equity officer. And uh, so it's, it's important for me to still talk about it because we will have our own uh, loan program, our own grant program uh, within the office as well. And so obviously watching how they're how it's going for them with the public private partnership is informing a lot of our own work as well. Uh, but let's just say that $150 million raise from the private sector right now, given where the capital markets are at, given where uh, the newness of this industry and also the the very well publicized um, uh, you know, layoffs in the cannabis industry, it's not stirring a lot of confidence with investors in the private sphere. And so it, 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 a lot of the a lot of the bigger companies who are criticizing, you know, their ability to raise this money couldn't come close to raising that money right now. <laughs> no one would give them that money. Uh, you know, they lose that money pretty much every quarter. Uh, but I, I think that it, it, it was unfortunate timing with what happened to the capital markets um, in, in terms of our rollout of our industry. Um, we are trying to stretch that $50 million that they do have uh, to ensure that it can actually help as many of the card licensees as possible. Um, but one of the reasons that we, uh, you know, decided to expand to 300 is because after our first con after our first initial licensing round back in November, where we gave out 38 licenses, at least 10 to 15 of those licensees, we started talking to them for the first time because they were no longer applicants. We actually started hearing their input. They're like, I have property. Um, my friend, my cousin has property. Uh, I can soap in here. I can get that. I can get this money. I don't need to wait for this. Um, and so, you know, that opened our eyes to, you know, the, the, by 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 opening up this licensing to people who had this business experience, like they already had existing businesses. I know I just met one of our licensees in the Bronx who owns gas stations up there and he's already got his location um, right on the border with West Westchester um, and he's going to open in ju June, July. Um, and so there a lot of these individuals have uh, the ability to do this without the fund and without DASNY. And I think that... Um, We've always just wanted to provide them with the flexibility to either, you know, wait to see if we can continue to raise this money and get this one of these locations. If 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 this is not something you want to do without the fund, without DASNY, you have to wait. Um, if right. you are ready to run, ready to go, go. If you and have a limit. They can also have uh, open a delivery service, too, if I'm not yes. mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. And a couple of those are coming online in the next few weeks, next next month or so. Um, so they can get their brand up and running. They can get their website up and running. They can do that customer acquisition. Uh, they can start making some money without the huge overhead of a retail uh, brick and mortar footprint. Um, and so a bunch of people are taking that option. A bunch of people are finding their own locations. And a bunch of people are opening up with DASNY. Um, we just opened up uh, you know, our last two, three dispensaries. We're opened up at DASNY locations. We're opening up another one this week. Um, and we'll probably open a, at least four more DASNY locations in April and May. So um, these locations are still getting locked in. But, you know, the the, the 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 challenge with raising private money right now, given where the capital markets are at, um, it, it is exceedingly difficult. And the last thing I'll say about it, cannabis industry doesn't lend money. Um, right. They don't make loans. They don't they don't like the, you guys want. Can you lend us money for our card licensees? No strings attached. Just give us the money and we'll give you 10 percent interest. They're like, no, I want shelf space. I want my I want it to be my franchise. I want it to be this, that and the other. Um, capital is used to a lot more favorable treatment in other markets traditionally, uh, which, in my opinion, has actually led to um, you know a lot of instability in those markets. Uh, and so I, I think that um, given our two tier market and, and the other capital and the other constraints we have on where capital can go uh, in terms of retail uh, and what it can do and how it can influence retail, um, there just weren't a lot of people in the cannabis industry who are interested in that opportunity.
That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing, the last thing I think that comes up for me here too is then, because I think that, you know, one, one of the things that we were definitely, uh, you know, concerned about, I would say at the round table was what you mentioned with that, that business experience, right? I, I get it. I understand that the premise behind it. And also now that we're seeing kind of how it works in practice where some of these folks, because they've been successful in business, they have other aspects of, uh, you know, they have access to some real estate. They're able to get themselves up and running. Um, is there a plan to, uh, to kind of change that definition at some point in time so that to your point earlier that you made with the accelerator now going on as the accelerator does get more momentum uh, where folks that are have been just as involved, just as impacted, but maybe don't have that two years that they can show on paper that they had. A, yeah, uh, no, the two year requirement yeah. is not happening again. Uh, okay. That was to start the industry. That was a special program. The, the, the Cannabis Control Board has the authority to issue new licenses. They issued a new license, issued different regs for that license. Uh, the social equity licensees um, will, you know, the definitions are right there in the regulations and, and in the cannabis law, you know, a marijuana arrest from a community disproportionately impacted from a community disproportionately impacted distressed farmers, service disabled veterans, uh, MWBEs. That's my focus. Um, the justice impact acted definition was a, a limited license that was, was used to start the industry, but it won't be replicated, uh, in subsequent, uh, rounds of licensing. Gotcha. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here right now. Come back with our game, Canna Quiz. We're going to see how Damien fares. I know, Kay, uh, I'm going to I'm going to you know, put you on blast here. I know you didn't fare too well when you were on here a couple weeks ago. So we'll see how Damien does and if he can if he can beat you. So anyway, uh, we'll come back in just a minute. Vince, take us away. Well, here at the National Cannabis Industry Association, we have proudly represented small businesses across the cannabis industry since 2010. We represent Main Street Cannabis, not Wall Street Cannabis. We have come so far in this fight to legalize cannabis that it seems that it's almost inevitable. And we're the ones making sure that as those rules are written, they favor small businesses, mom and pop operators, and Main Street Cannabis, not Wall Street Cannabis. In addition to making sure that your voice is heard at the federal level, being a member of NCIA also means building a vibrant community of small business owners within the cannabis space because we can always learn so much better by working together, learning from our mistakes and our successes and building this industry together. So if you're interested in making sure that small businesses and Main Street Cannabis has a seat at the table, be sure to join NCIA at thecannabisindustry.org. Awesome. Well, no, this has this has been great. Uh, even just for my sake, uh, personally, it's great to get this information from Damien and kind of understand what's going on with your office. And you know, uh, really does help shed a lot of light on on what's going on behind the scenes. And like I said, I think it's it's awesome that there is as much thought being put behind things because, as I said earlier in the show, equity, inclusion, diversity, these things take time and they take a lot of thought and a lot of energy and a lot of really intention. And um, you know, I think that we, we often it's easy to kind of look at the headlines and see, oh, this happened or that happened. But when we understand what's going behind on behind the scenes, uh, hopefully that that gives people a little bit more faith in the fact that this will be an equitable rollout uh, as time goes on. Um, yeah, so and I, said, I just want to can I just say one yeah, thing to that? Absolutely. Uh, one thing that hasn't been covered in the press, and a lot of things have been covered in the press, but uh, you know, after we open up these two dispensaries uh, by the end of this week, uh, six of our first seven dispensaries are either owned or run, or you know, partially owned or managed. The CEO is black, um, so you know, six of our first seven in the state of New York, and it gets lost in the conversation. We're doing equity. Uh, this is what it looks like. Um, it definitely, it definitely has some speed bumps there, but 
um, if you're doing equity work, it's not just corporate social responsibility. It's actually putting licenses in the hands of people who uh, deserve it and who haven't been given those opportunities before and letting them run their businesses, not running it for them. Um, and right. so that's what that's what we're doing. And that's that's what we're going to keep doing. Uh, that's you know, that, that's refreshing to hear, because, I mean, like you know, Chicago, for example, I think uh, it was literally the opposite. I think there was zero uh, black owned, operated, managed uh, dispensaries at one point in time. Um, I think uh, going back uh, into the medical uh, the medical space when, when they came out of that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, that does get lost in the conversation, I think. And it is something that we've seen in other states has not happened at all. So. Uh, so really, really uh, good stuff there. <laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, well, we've got a couple questions here for you. The way it works is just basically a multiple choice uh, quiz for you. We got two questions lined up uh, and uh, it's nothing you could prepare for necessarily. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Um, so normally we ask about wacky regulations around the country. Uh, but, you know, we realized that as a regulator, maybe that's something you've been studying. So we decided to go a little bit of a different direction. Um, and uh, here we go. The cannabis plant is becoming more and more known for its effectiveness as a fibrous building material in applications like hempcrete or spun hemp plastic. What ancient site was likely helped constructed with cannabis, if not aliens, of course? Uh, what likely, what ancient site was constructed with the help of cannabis, potentially? Um, is it Easter Island, Egyptian Pyramids, Stonehenge, or Machu Picchu? Uh -huh. Easter Island, Egyptian Pyramids, Stonehenge, or Machu Picchu? Um, Stonehenge. So in 2012, the CSU Long Beach archaeologist uh, proved that all that was needed to position the statues on Easter Island was hemp rope. <laughs> so by attaching three hemp ropes to the statue and having a team of 18 people rock it back and forth until it walked, they were actually able to get this hundred, you know, this this massive stone about 100 meters uh, in less than an hour. So showing mm. that the Eastern Islanders, Easter Islanders would have been able to uh, to do something similar. So, yeah, Easter Island, like the big myth, the big the big, uh, you know, legend. How the hell did this thing come out to be in the first place? The answer, of course, hemp rope. So it mm. shows you hemp is something that is here to stay. It's been around for a long time. So Stonehenge really was definitely definitely aliens then. Stonehenge <laughs> was aliens. Yeah, Stonehenge was aliens, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes Egypt sense. was Egypt was just I think a miracle marvel, and yeah. uh, Machu Picchu. I mean, I don't know that that's that's at such a high altitude. Um, all right, so now we got another one, uh, one more here, a fun one. Uh, we all know that cannabis consumers can be enthusiastic, of course, about you know 420, right? 420 is a big big uh, holiday in the industry. April 20th, uh, it's a number mm. that pops up all the time. People like to burn it 420, so on and so forth. So. What state in 2013 had to remove the 420 mile marker from their highway <laughs> and replace it with a 419.99 mile marker because oh the 420 God. sign kept being stolen? <laughs> it's Colorado or California, 100%. <laughs> well, so we got Utah, Colorado, Oregon, and Idaho. Sounds like you're going with Colorado. Colorado. Is that your answer? All right, yeah. final answer, and that is correct. In 2014, <laughs> the Colorado Department of Transportation had to replace uh, on I-70 East of Denver with a 419.99 mile marker to deter. No, those those might yeah. those things are all in dorm rooms at Boulder College. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's where they all are. That, exactly. I don't know, Ten years ago now, so now they're uh, now they're in somebody's you know what? office. The four the four nineteen nine nine. That's even more valuable now. I want that. <laughs> like that, that tells a much cooler story. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we know if that one goes missing, we know who took right. it. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So you got one out of two. You beat Kay. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, sorry, Kay. I'll be back to myself. 
<laughs> awesome. No, look, Damien, really appreciate you taking the time out today. I know you've been busy as hell. Uh, yeah. It's really good to catch up with you and get to see the work that you're doing. I appreciate that you're there in that office holding it down and doing this work. So, um, you know, look, and big shout out again to Anthony Jenkins for connecting Anthony, everybody. Shout out, Anthony. Yeah. Shout out, Anthony. Okay, you know Anthony. You know, Anthony's a great guy. Great Anthony, guy, next so. level. Absolutely, yeah. next level. So, look, uh, everybody has... guys. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So we'll have to have you on again. And in the meantime, though, everybody have a wonderful rest of your day. Uh, if you're watching live, then have a great rest of your week. If you're checking out the recording, then have great whenever, whatever it is you're, you're checking out. So awesome. Everybody have a great one and talk to you soon. Bye. 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 The Cannabis Minority Report is a production of the National Cannabis Industry Association. We are hosted each week by Mike Lamuto, and we were joined this week as co-host by Kay Villeman. Directed by Vince Chandler, our producers are Bethany Moore and Aaron Smith, and our executive producers are Vince Chandler and Mike Lamuto.